Hi, my name is Kunal, and welcome to the Geeks of the Valley podcast, which connects with some of the brightest minds globally who are leading their respective industries today to discuss the hottest upcoming industry trends and how their work is affecting the global economy. Named Young Global Leader by the World Economic Forum, Sarah's career spans across venture capital and innovation in Asia Pacific and the US. She's the co-founder of the Billion Dollar Fund for Women, a global consortium of venture funds that have now pledged to invest and are actively deploying beyond $1 billion towards women-founded companies. To begin to address the venture investment gap where women founders receive less than 3% of total VC funding. Going beyond the billion, her mission is now to catalyze capital deployed to these venture funds. Please welcome Sarah Chen. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us this morning from Washington, DC. Thanks, Canal, for inviting me on. Really a pleasure to be on here to speak a little bit about my work. No problem, Sarah, and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, let's uh, jump into the first question here, shall we? Yep, of course. Tell me about yourself and your background and how it led you to the path of becoming the founder of the Billion Dollar Fund. Uh, to your question on my journey, you know, I've really had in, if I think about it now, an unconventional journey, even, you know, how I got into venture capital. Long story short, um, I'm originally from Malaysia and went to uh, law school in England, came back to Malaysia, ran a family business for a while. And soon after that, joined an Asian conglomerate that was in the business of agriculture and, you know, was very much uh, a young and ambitious person and was looking out for great role models around me. And uh, actually through that, you know, sort of being an eager beaver, trying to look for role models, I uh, got a meeting with one of the senior vice presidents of the company at the time who was working in strategy. And while you know, I was there, frankly, just to have a coffee and chat about how he got to where he was at that time, he turned it around very quickly uh, into an interview and asked me, I can still remember this, he asked me, how many ping pong balls can you fit into a Boeing 747? And you know, we, we chatted a bit, definitely built a lot of rapport at that time. And he said, you know what, Sarah, if you're game, I would like to hire you for what we're doing, which is building the very first corporate venture capital unit. And you'll be one of the first few hires. And I said, yes. Uh, and that changed my trajectory forever. And I'm still very thankful to uh, one of my best bosses of all time till now, I would say, Asli, uh, if you somehow are listening in, this, this is a big thank you to you. But you know, Osley was really a good boss in that he saw a young, ambitious person who wanted to do more. And because of my legal background, he saw that certainly as an advantage. And my first deal was a $30 million deal where we were investing into a startup based in San Diego. And long story short, um, I had an opportunity not long after that to visit the portfolio company um, and this is a bit of the personal serendipity, met my husband along the way and who was at the time living in Washington, D.C. And uh, lo and behold, this is where I am today because I made that personal leap. And a small part of the story, well, really a big part of the story was also and, and why I'm doing the work I am doing right now at the Billion Dollar Fund for Women is um, I became an accidental feminist while I was pursuing my career in venture capital 
you know, I was looking around me and realized that, hey, uh, I'm the only one that looks like me and talks like me. <laughs> and basically, uh, I was one of very few women and the women that were there, uh, they were women that I certainly respected, uh, very senior, experienced women that were helping with the technical diligence while I was doing the transactions and all that, and they were supporting so the diligence. Um, but, you know, there was a certain circumstance that I reflect on, uh, Kunal, that was really influential in, in some of the choices that I made, which was that um, at 6 p.m., the women would check out and the men would still stay on, both married, you know, both married individually, so the, the men and the, uh, the women at, at the workplace, but it, it really struck me how, um, you know, they were rushing home because the children and the families expected them to uh, be the one that cooks or prepares the meals and things like that in the evenings, whereas the men uh, who were also married with children uh, would stay on because their wives would take care of the domestic responsibilities. And uh, I soon realized as well that that impacted uh, who got the keys to the corner office at the end of it all. And, uh, you know, even in meetings, I would remember situations where uh, some of these women who were very qualified and smart, you know, smarter than any one of us, um, but they would say things like, hey, Sarah, you know, you speak so well, why don't you present uh, the findings for us? I, you know, I don't really like the attention and things like that. And, you know, that made me look around even further and think a little bit deeper and saw that this was not only happening in my office, it was happening in so many offices around Malaysia and impacted the number of women um, that we see in leadership, right? So at that time, uh, when I started Lean in Malaysia, uh, 2015 was, um, it was only 5% uh, that were uh, women CEOs at the time. And, you know, that really struck me. So whilst I was working late at night and doing the deals and loving my work, um, Along the way as well, my, my uh, father passed, unfortunately, and, and that sort of pushed me to think deeper about uh, my purpose. And, um, you know, I, whilst I had my uh, challenging venture capital career, decided to also start a nonprofit for women empowerment. And uh, when I moved to the United States, so now circling back to where I am, um, you know, I, I let my passion lead me when I first got here, frankly, I had zero friends other than my husband uh, and zero network. And I had to work hard to build that. And I volunteered uh, for a couple of boards, including one which was about advancing uh, women entrepreneurship in the DC area. So it was called Beacon DC. And that was actually where I met my co-founder, Shelly Porges, who really is the brain <laughs> behind the idea of the billion dollar fund for women. So, so Shelly, uh, when I met her, you know, she was, uh, I would say still in recovery after the 2016 elections. Uh, she was a senior advisor to Secretary Clinton at the time in global entrepreneurship, and then went into the private sector to advise actually venture funds to gender diversify because she was, you know, president of the North American Cartier jury at the time as well and saw how there were so many great female founders that were innovating in so many different ways, but were just not getting the funding. Uh, they were getting grants, which is great, but you and I know that doesn't go very, very far. And uh, when I met her and she said, you know, I have this idea of the billion dollar fund for women, I just raised my hand 
and decided that uh, I was going to help her. I, I asked her, you know, can I help you with this? And she, you know, at that time, it wasn't much of a, a structure yet. So, you know, we worked together to really bring the idea to life and the vision to life. And um, because of sort of the two stories that, that I brought in early on, which is on venture capital, women leadership, this was really uh, the perfect merger of my two loves, right? Uh, which is women leadership. How do we get them um, in places that they deserve to be because they're so qualified, but because of a lot of biases that work against us that we're not where we should be. Um, and how do we also use venture capital? Because, you know, if you look at some of the top companies and, and how we're connecting today, right? All of these companies are venture backed. Um, and they're going to be influencing the way we live, the way we work, the way we think, uh, as we, we saw yesterday, unfortunately, right? That's sort of the negative of how technology can influence um, society. And uh, if women are not a part of it, you know, I, I think that's uh, definitely a loss, a loss for society. And I wanted to play a role in it. So uh, long story short, we merged uh, our capabilities into the billion dollar fund for women. And the big goal was, you know, at that time, um, both of us were seeing it in our different trajectories of women not getting funded, right? So in 2017, the number was only 2.2% that was going to female founders in the United States. So imagine my shock as a bright-eyed Malaysian girl going into um, the beacon, right, of, of innovation, which is the United States, and realizing that, hey, they, they too have the same problems of gender inequality. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that was uh, ridiculous because still, you know, along the way, we, we were seeing in our different worlds how um, this was the, the amount of funding that was going to female founders was definitely not representative of the quality and even the quantity of great women innovators out there. They were just not getting the access to capital that they needed. So um, our goal was, could we change the system by aiming for a billion dollars, which was half of that 2.2% at the time that maybe we would achieve in maybe 10 years, uh, you know, to catalyze larger pools of capital going into female founders. And, uh, you know, no one was more surprised than we were, uh, Kunal, but we had the opportunity to present at the World Bank meetings in Bali where we launched October, 2018. And uh, we arrived with 460 million pledged uh, by different venture funds across the world to say, I'm ready to invest more into female founders. Tell me how I can do it. And we realized then when we launched that we were onto something, there was a great opportunity here. And we uh, went full force in, in driving this globally with the different things that we went into. And I, I can share more about uh, you know, what we did in the last couple of years. But uh, within nine months, right, remember I told you it was a plan to get a billion dollars into the hands of female founders in 10 years. Uh, so that was our initial business plan. Uh, but within nine months, actually, we hit the billion dollar mark and uh, therefore, you know, were prompted to go beyond the billion, which is our name now. So there was a bit of an evolution because people were asking us, okay, so you hit the billion dollar mark, uh, what next, you know, 2 billion, 10 billion, what, what next? And we decided why cap it? You know, there's a lot of work to be done, which is not just to work at the VC level. So the general partners, right? So we call them VC slash GPs, um, but also 
beyond that, the problem is who is funding these VC funds? So uh, for some of your listeners here, you know, there might be a misconception that every venture capitalist is rich. Uh, this is certainly not the case. Uh, a VC's life is, uh, can be a very hard one, especially if you're starting out. Uh, on your own, but you know, they're money managers, right? And you're investing someone else's money. And typically that would come from what we call limited partners that are family offices, that are high net worth individuals, that are pension funds, institutional funds, financial institutions, sovereign wealth funds, things like that. And uh, yeah, it is a fiduciary duty to invest it responsibly. And, you know, my personal, um, I guess, you know, our mission collectively is, is that, you know, we think the check writer has a huge influence on, on where and what gets invested, right? Who, what, where, you know? Um, and that's really the mission of Beyond the Berlin to uh, work with LPs to say, uh, if you want my capital, you need to be investing in it, uh, investing it responsibly into, diversity that really reflects uh, the reality of today, right? So, um, you know, the hope and the mission it will continue to be how do we feel women-led innovation and we're catalyzing the capital to do, do just that. Wow, Sarah, what a background. And thank you for sharing your insights when it comes to gender inequality in the space. I think there is something truly to be said here. From our initial conversation, we had discussed that there are many venture capitalists out there who may not be investing through a gender perspective lens. What steps do VCs out there need to take in order to be more cognizant about investing more capital into women-founded companies? Thanks, Kanal. I think that's a very important question, right? And I think it starts from understanding that all of us uh, men and women included have biases and we need to address them intentionally in everything that we do and especially as investors right when we talk about pattern matching you know it's it's a term that's very common in the financial industry where you sort of identify trends and patterns that deliver certain results and therefore you keep going back to that but if you really think about it you know uh, women and people of color are talking within the United States context have and beyond, of course, um, have hardly had the opportunity to create the track records to create those patterns, right? Uh, if you we think about the 2.2%, if you only rely on that as uh, your, your sample size, you know, that's not going to uh, really reflect the patterns that you're used to. But frankly, uh, what we're seeing is, you know, even from the 2.2%, female founders are outperforming by leaps and bounds. Uh, so beyond the billet, we recently came out with a report in, in December that we launched last year, 2020, that shows that not only are female founders outperforming, so these, this is a statistic that we know, right? They, they outperform by revenues. Um, they have higher retention rates when uh, you, you look at the teams, which is good for business. But beyond that, they are also exiting faster and at higher valuations and, and more than ever, I, I think that this is the time for women. We're seeing the numbers of female founded unicorns really jump, right? So um, I am really encouraged by what we're seeing. And I think that, you know, once we recognize our patterns and 
sort of now link patterns to the fact that diversity just drives returns, that's going to change the game. And we need to be asking the hard questions, right? So at, at the level of the limited partner, and it starts with this, because I, I think, frankly, the limited partners have such a huge opportunity here that they don't always, always utilize because uh, for a lot of limited partners, if you think about the profiles that I shared earlier on, right, pension funds, uh, they have not as many managers been rewarded for taking perceived risk, right, going beyond the status quo. And if going beyond the status quo looks like you and me, you know, what's the hope going to be? And it starts from that. It starts from them asking the question, hey, can we do things differently? And can we demand that our money managers, the GPs who are man managing our assets, continue to do good by investing in diversity themselves and also conducting themselves in, in the best way, right? So, and, and what I'm talking about here is I'm bringing light to the Me Too movement, which uh, really uh, was the, the news that, that caught us all of guard in showing how VCs uh, themselves were using their power uh, to do really bad things. And, and that shows how the power imbalance and dynamics can really change things where women were discouraged, right? If you're going to ask a startup to pitch to you in a hot tub, uh, and that's going to be the requirement to get the capital, Who's going to want to go through that as a, you know, as a female founder? And that discourages people. It discourages people from even going into the workplace. You think about the uh, stories of Uber, right? Uh, Travis uh, was not his best self when uh, they really revealed um, the different, unfortunately, uh, misconduct that created an environment that was just not safe and, and not healthy for women to thrive in. And, and that's, if you think about the larger scale of things, it's, 50% of the population and 50% of the talent that you could be utilizing, but because of uh, your bad behavior and bad ethics, really, you're not um, really maximizing the potential that you could have in driving the innovation that you want to see. So asking the hard questions, and if you look at even these situations, a lot of the investors in that uh, case of Uber, Bill Gurley was called out by Katrina Lake, uh, who was another investee company. So, you know, Katrina Lake is the CEO of Stitch Fix and Bill Gurley was also invested in her. And, and she took, took a very, very serious offense with Bill Gurley continuing to su support Travis whilst all this was coming to light. And it shows that, you know, as an investor, you have such a huge role to play. How can you let your portfolio companies uh, go down this path, right? So it starts with asking the hard questions, demanding certain standards that will enable all of us to thrive. And beyond that, you know, hiring and promoting women, uh, not just at the junior level. So one of the other issues that we're continuing to see today is, unfortunately, even in the US, 60% of venture funds do not have a female check writer. And how do you think that's going to affect uh, the funding down the line into female founders? And I'm not saying that, uh, yes, the, the likelihood is a female funder might uh, fund a female founder, but that's not just because, oh, um, you know, I just like women, so I, I want to fund them. It is because we, by nature, are probably going to be more connected to the community that opens us up, right? So women and people of color, I, I quote Low Tony in, in this um, where, you know, we asked him, why do you think it's so important to 
um, hire women and people of color at the funding level, so at the GP level, VC level. And he said, you know, very frankly, women and people of color have a different experience and we have a differentiated lens and unique network that just influences the pipeline. So, you know, this is something that we need to all take seriously. You know, it's not a matter of checking the box, but it is about building a culture that just fosters diversity. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, the fact is that there might be blind spots that I have uh, that you can see Kunal and I would value that and vice versa. And uh, this is how we get to, you know, the best solutions. And I think that um, asking the hard questions, demanding more of all of us at every level, at the founder level, at the GP level, at the LP level is going to be the key here. Well said, Sarah. And now I'm going to come back on you just a bit. So female-led startups receive less than 3% of venture capital funding in the U.S. today. If money is opportunistic, why does it not automatically flow towards success? I really like that question, Kunal. And actually, this is probably the, I want to say the third time or, or more that I've been asked that. And the reality is, as I said, you know, it's um, when... When you think about how someone raises funding, um, it is through people they know, it is through networks that they know. And unfortunately, uh, women may not be rolling in the old boys club of you know, Harvard or uh, Stanford that would be able to sort of just bring up their rich friend, right? So you think about uh, the case of a, if you think, you know, if I ask you this question right now in your mind, what does a startup founder look like? You probably quickly, unfortunately, go to a vision of Zuckerberg in his hoodie, uh, maybe with flip-flops and, you know, crunching through the code and things like that. And, you know, if you think about someone like that who went to an Ivy League school and just goes out into the market, rings his father's friends, is able to raise funding, that is a very different picture compared to, you know, a women of color who may not grow up in the same environments and opportunities of privilege that this uh, Zuckerberg character would have grow, you know, grown up in, right? So, you know, I think it has to do with the access to the networks, you know, being intentional about this. Um, things are changing and I'm encouraged, but also, you know, beyond that, think about just the last year, right? And, and this is unfortunate because we've made great strides forward, but last year with COVID-19, um, you know, there was a significant decline in funding to female founders versus male founders. It was by 31% in the first three quarters of 2020. And, you know, that sort of, when, when we dug a little bit deeper to why this was the case, one of it was that women um, were carrying the burden of responsibilities at home. So even though it's a dual household, right? So there's both men and women working at home, um, you know, or, you know, whatever um, structures that work for them, but the female um, individual typically takes on the domestic responsibilities, whether that's childcare, uh, taking care of elderly parents that may be sick at the time, and that influences her choices, right? So um, in a circumstance where somebody takes a step back in their career, uh, unfortunately, in today, 
in, in today's age, we still see the women taking a step back. Having said that, uh, we've been encouraged, right? The, the impact of COVID-19 is really complex because we've also seen some women that, ha that have already uh, built sort of systems and structures of support for themselves really, really thrive in the time of COVID-19 because they, by nature, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately put it this way, have raised less funding and therefore have had to be more um, resourceful and have had better cash management practices. And they were able to adapt and deliver the returns Right, so women, as you know, get half the funding, but deliver twice the returns. And if you think about them in a time of crisis, those that have built structures that would work um, to withstand the pressures of a pandemic have continued to do well. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, just to name a few, a couple of two female-founded unicorns that came out of last year. Right, so one of our uh, portfolio funds companies, Air Wallex, that is led by Lucy Liu in Australia raised a $160 million round uh, during the pandemic in April 2020. So, you know, that there is a mixed approach, but you know, what, what I'm trying to say here is that there are many different layers as to why uh, women are um, not doing as well from a funding perspective. Um, and it has to do with what network she has. Um, if she's in the very early stage, how do we get her to the next stage? And if you know, the, the, even in COVID-19, right, if you see the uh, numbers, the reason why, one of the other reasons why uh, female funding, uh, funding to female founders has declined significantly is because a lot of them were also in the early stages and uh, in the later stages, like the growth stage and things like that, you know, your pressures are different, right? So those that were wiped up in the pandemic uh, may not have been built sufficiently and were written off, whereas those in the later stages that had product market fit, that had already raised significant funding, were able to continue to, to grow it and get to the next stage. So um, really a multi-layered approach here to address this issue. But yeah, I mean, it's very complex. And I think we have to start with how do we continue to build the pipeline to bring them through the stages to get the funding that they deserve? Because like I said, you know, this is an alpha opportunity and any investor who's looking for a good return will want to double down on the opportunity that fewer founders present. So Sarah, your job is a bit unique as a consortium of funds. A lot of your time is spent speaking with potential LPs or CIOs, whether it be family offices, other VC funds, pension funds, or university endowment funds, as previously mentioned. Many of these funds tend to take a risk-adverse approach when it comes to alternative investing or investing in early-stage venture funds. Can you tell us a bit more about how some of the conversations you're having with these high-level individuals is a reflection of the current market sentiment and how you persuade them to invest with or in you? Sure. Thanks, Kunal. You know, I, I think that... Um times are certainly changing. Of course, you know, LPs at the end of the day um, have a huge responsibility, as I said. And, you know, they, I think, you know, in, in recent times, as we've seen the public markets perform, um, what I've been told actually, and in this, I will reflect on a conversation that I had with one of the CIOs of uh, a pension fund um, in, in the United States, 
And what she told me was really interesting, which uh, spotlights what we're what you're asking all about here, Canal, which is, you know, if they don't diversify into venture, right? So the alternative assets, they're going to be struggling to deliver the returns of the 7% that, you know, they're expected to for their pension funds, right? For their beneficiaries. And, you know, that really is telling on how markets are changing that um, it now is almost a need for LPs that are thinking about delivering returns um, and, and hopefully going beyond the benchmarks that is required of them um, to be a little bit more creative and open to new, new ideas, right? That basically the old ideas can no longer serve uh, the investment community. And, and in fact, you know, I reflect upon even the time of the racial reckoning. And of course, that was certainly a very sad time, but what it's opened up is really it's opened up a whole level of conversation from folks like Yale, right? David Swenson putting money managers on notice about diversity, um, looking at different corporates that also have investing arms to say, you know what, what we're doing is not good enough, right? And we must do a lot better. And even if that means um, inviting in first-time funds. And, and this is a huge problem, right? And, and I empathize on both sides because like you said, you know, having these conversations with uh, the investment managers, the CIOs of, of these uh, different funds, you know, it's not the lack of intention and lack of motivation here for them to do the right thing. They know they, they can and they must continue to do the right thing. But there are certain limitations that are built well ingrained into the system, legacy systems like, you know, literally the track record, right? So talking about first-time funds, if an LP um, has no capability to basically by mandate, not allowed to invest into a first-time fund, cannot take more than 30% of a fund uh, or can't write a, a check smaller than 100 million, and I'm talking about institutionals here, you know, that cuts out a, a big group of um, folks that are really trying hard here that really reflect the diversity that we truly need. So it is about changing some of these legacy systems that will take some time. Um, but I'm encouraged by the urgency that seems to be um, very present in, in a lot of the conversations that we're seeing. I mean, if you um, sort of just do a a quick Google search on sort of talks on diversity at the money management space. You know, um, there's so much that has popped up in just the last year because I, I think this, um, you know, real push here from, from the market for all of them to do better. If you think about the pension funds, right, who are the beneficiaries that they're serving and who is on the list for the managers of uh, uh sort of the endowment or the pension funds and things like that. And that disconnect is something that, you know, people are having very open conversations about. And uh, I'm encouraged that we're now actually, you know, um, we are working with a large bank and their due diligence arm uh, to think about how can we do this better, right? And what does this mean in terms of perhaps um, proxy indicators that first-time fund managers just, do not have, right? So it's, it's, and when I'm talking about this, it is the question that a lot of money managers are forced to ask, which is, hey, can you give me your 10 year track record, right? What, what are the financials and things like that? And if a lot of the first time funds have only been in existence in the last year or so, 
they're immediately disqualified. But does that mean that um, they should not be allowed to uh, compete in the arena? Um, so a lot of hard questions are being asked right now. And I think that this year, because last year was a lot of um, trying to figure things out, you know, calling for RFPs and uh, a lot of evaluation. This year is when we'll see a lot more deployment. So while some have criticized the fact that, yeah, you know, there's a lot of talk, um, very little action, uh, we are seeing them. They are happening behind closed doors. And I am an optimist, so I'm hopeful for real deployment for this to happen and to really change the game. I mean, we've seen a couple of um, big checks being written already. And um, I'm excited because, you know, the reality is first-time funds actually outperform. And this performance, you know, once we link even further, you know, the data has been around for a long time, right? That diversity is just good for business. Uh, but the more and more that we continue to enforce and the more that people see that this is a no-brainer, that if you really want your alpha, this is the opportunity to double down on. Um, I think it's... Is going to be positive and, and we're going to see that in the coming years. And to wrap up our call with our last question for today, what piece of advice would you give to people out there from the journey you have had so far in life? Wow, that's a big one. Um, you know, one of the biggest things I think that I personally um, sort of learned in the last couple of years, right? So if you think about what I, I uh, I've done to myself, which is uproot myself from my comfort zone and go into a whole new country, a whole new market. Um, it, it's been really hard, frankly. It's been really, really hard personally uh, trying to figure things out, right? You know, so um, I, I think I'll share that the hustle is good, but, you know, your mental health is super important. So be kind and gentle to yourself, even as you achieve your most ambitious goals, because um, life, you know, everything that you're trying to achieve, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon and you want to protect uh, your asset, which is yourself, um, have faith, do the work, stay focused on what's important. And also something else that, um, you know, I, I'm definitely such a motivation geek, but a quote that I really, really like, and I hold on to when the days are hard is, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there with half your qualifications, half your experience that are doing what you want to do just because they decided to do it. So you, you know, you better do something now, right? So wake up every day with purpose. You know, there will be hard days. Take a break from um, the routine every now and then, but um, keep going. I think um, success in life is really about showing up, right? I never think that I'm the smartest or the best person in the room, but what I pride myself on is the fact that I'm very persistent. Even when I don't know the way, um, I'll show up, right? And I will ask questions. I'll try to figure it out every day. Every day I'm figuring it out and every day I'm learning something new. I'm making mistakes, um, but I'm learning something new and hopefully every day I get better and I hope to apply this and everything that I do and this uh, hopefully decade of my life is going to be focused on uh, utilizing that and directing that into venture capital and trying to do the best that I can through the investments that we all make uh, and catalyzing the larger community. Um, so yeah, that would be my advice. And Sarah, for people out there who are interested in potentially catching a cup of coffee with you, 
or reaching out to you, what would be the best point of contact? Sure. Um, the best way to reach out to me actually um, is through social media. I, I would love to hear from you. I mean, I'm, I'm loving um, sort of connecting with my larger community on my social media. Personally, that's Sarah Chan Global. And of course, uh, you know, you can email me as well. It's Sarah at uh, beyondthebillion.com and check out everything that we have on our site, beyondthebillion.com. And if there's anything else I can do for you all, you know, reach out to me. I think, yeah, um, I've actually met some great people through just connecting over LinkedIn and things like that. And so never underestimate it, right? So I, I welcome you to reach out to me and uh, see what we can do together. Sarah, it was a pleasure having you on Geeks of the Valley. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kunal. Thank you.